We've been in this series for the last five weeks looking and trying to understand how we as individual Christians uh, can become more connected to the local church. Uh, the Christian walk is not a walk that we do by ourselves. It's a walk that we do together. And while there are individual parts to that walk, there's a corporate and community part as well. And so we've been studying uh, the book of Acts, learning at the, as the first church lived life together, as they worshiped together, as they served and used their gifts together, as they sat under the apostles' teachings together, and as we're going to find out, as they went out and shared the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ together, we see that God did great things in their midst. And because we desire those same things. We look to the new, the first church and we ask the question, what did they do? How did they do it? And how can we implement some of those same things in our own lives as well as in the life of us as a church? And so let's go ahead and let's look to the key passage that we've been looking at uh, over these weeks. Uh, Acts chapter 2, vor- verses 42 through 47. I'm asking you to stand uh, for the reading of God's Word to give it the honor that is due. And uh, let's look at this text together, and uh, then we'll ask for God's blessing once again and get into our message this morning. It says, They, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I want you to focus in on that part of the passage this morning. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It'd be pretty cool if we could say as a church that the Lord was adding to our number daily those who were being saved. Amen? We desire that. We want that. I hope that every Christian here would say that that verse, verse 47, is the desire not only for the church, but that you might be able to say that the Lord added to God's family daily because you and I as individuals were faithful as well. That the Lord would add to people uh, into the family of God who were in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our families, those we maybe have never even met before. How do we do that? I want you to turn a page back before we go to a time of prayer to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. How did they position themselves to see this incredible unleashing of God's power by His Spirit? And verse 8 of chapter 1, these are some of Jesus' final words to His disciples before He would ascend to heaven. And He says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses. That's a key phrase there. My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father God, we come now before you, Lord, and we desire, we desire, Lord, to be your witnesses. Now, Lord, that's a scary thought for many of us because, Lord, just as the early church learned that this world uh, doesn't necessarily like all that the gospel has to say. Lord, many in this world, maybe even the vast majority in this world, Lord, would rather live life on their own, uh, pursuing their own thoughts and their own desires than to bow the knee in submission to Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we know that when we say we want to be your witnesses, that what we are asking for is a life that won't be easy, that it won't be simple, but Lord, it can be complicated and it can be very hard. But Lord, as we see the great fruit that will come as we saw in the book of Acts, is far greater than anything that in temporal circumstances we may have to face. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be your witnesses and that, Lord, as a result of our faithfulness, as a result of your word not coming back void, as a result of you uh, watering and, and bringing those seeds to full fruition, that we will see a great harvest of souls. Lord, we would see it here in Sugar Grove. We would see it in our communities. We would see it within our families. We would see it in our workplaces. And Lord, with the help of ministry partners like Phil and Sarah, that we would see it to the uttermost parts of the world. Lord, we know You can do it. We know that You are able. And Lord, we know because we have the Holy Spirit that You have empowered us to do the same. 
So Lord, I pray that you would speak through us this morning, that you would speak clearly so that we may know what your marching orders are for us as a church and as Christians in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I want to look at the issue of outreach and evangelism under the heading of God's marching orders for the church. And I could add that it's God's marching orders for us as Christians. We're going to camp on Acts 1-8 and really just talk about the implications of that passage uh, this morning. I want to do so by just explaining a little bit of what it means that you will be my witnesses. Now, one way I won't do it is to talk about um, about missions as a whole, because, and it's not because I don't like missions or that that's not important, but the reason why we're going to focus in on particularly us as individuals in the local church is that what this whole series has been about? Connecting the individual believer uh, to the church, and we want to find out how outreach and evangelism is to be played out in that way. And I know we've had messages that have been preached from this passage that have gone on the other side, that have talked about our Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. And if you want to, you can go to our website and look up some of those when you have some time. But this morning I want to examine, again under the heading, God's marching orders for the church. Now, we have a lot of marching orders in our world. I recently read a book uh, talking about the Normandy invasion, the largest single invasion of of human history known to man. More people, more uh, uh, different equipment, more uh, planes and boats would be used in the invasion of Normandy, of course, on D-Day. And the examination that this book had was the choosing of the man who would uh, run the show, if you will, the general who would lead this immense army into battle, hoping that this incredible invasion would then lead to the downfall of Nazism, of course, Adolf Hitler. And in studying it, they talk about over and over again that Eisenhower, who would inevitably be the general, was not the best known general. He didn't have the best uh, history as a general as others did. He wasn't the most uh, accomplished general, but one of the things that Eisenhower was able to do was clearly dictate to individuals what the goal and purpose of any mission was and to make sure that the logistics of that mission was played out just perfectly. And so when Churchill and, and Roosevelt got together in London uh, in a secret meeting, they made the decision based on Eisenhower's abilities to see that marching orders would be agreed upon and played out just as they had been planned, Eisenhower was going to be the man. And Eisenhower rose to the task. And of course, we know that as a result of that incredible invasion, because of his ability to see a a mission succeed and see it from start to finish, Eisenhower, of course, would then become a great general. He would be known as, of course, a president. And he would go down as one of the greatest men to ever have lived. We see marching orders in army terms. We see marching orders. If you go home today and watch a little football, you'll see marching orders every time that the quarterback gathers the rest of his team together for a huddle. Here's the play, guys. Here's what we're going to do next. So I'm going to need you, wide receiver, to head this way. And running back, I'm going to need you to block this way. And offensive lineman, I'm really going to need you to do this, that, and the other thing to make sure the play goes through. A quarterback will never be the guy that is going to lead his team to victory if he cannot give clear marching orders to his team. Even within our jobs, our superiors tell us all the time certain things that need to get done. Many of you know that I run a catering business throughout the week, and one of the things that I always get rolled eyes by my employees about is right before they leave on an event, I want to walk through everything, whether it's the checklist for all the food that needs to go on the event, to answering any questions they have. I don't want them to leave the office until they are clear on what needs to be accomplished on the job. We have marching orders throughout our lives. Many of you parents give marching orders to your kids as they leave the house, okay? I want you to do this. Make sure you do that. Make sure that you eat all of your food when you get to uh, school. Make sure that you're kind to people. All of these different things because we desire after giving these marching orders because they're clear and they're able to be understood that our children will go in the way they need to go. All of that to say, that God has given us marching orders. At the end of Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus began to move from the teaching and the training of his disciples 
to really now telling them what they were going to do. And I want you to notice within these marching orders uh, are some things that we can learn as Christians because the marching orders that the disciples were given are also given to us today. And so let's notice a couple things under uh, five headings, and some of these points are going to be very quick, and I'm going to focus only in on a couple of them this morning. The first thing that we need to know as we look at God's marching orders for the church, if we're going to accomplish them, then the first thing we must do is we must involve ourselves in remembering the clear mandate. Remembering the clear mandate. At the end of Christ's time here on earth, he gave a clear, crystal clear mandate for what the disciples were to do after he left. I want you to turn for a moment to Matthew, the book of Matthew. If you're in the book of Acts, come back to uh, the left, uh, to the book of Matthew. So you're going to go through the Gospels of John and, and Luke and Mark, and then the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, a famous passage, a passage that gives us uh, not only our mandate, but in essence it commissions us, and that's why we call it the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, at the very end of the, of the book, Jesus, again, is about to ascend into heaven. And Matthew records these words in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So notice verse 19 of Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Jesus' mandate for the disciples and for us today is incredibly clear. We are to go. That means we can't stay. And so going implies an action. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to know that the walk of Christ, being a follower of mine, is going to involve some action. It isn't sitting around and contemplating things that I've said. It isn't building a house way out in the middle of the wilderness and just, uh, just resonating on the life of Jesus. But Jesus is saying, I want you to go. And the implication is that as Christians, we are going to be involved in a certain action. The action is going to involve leading people to Jesus Christ. That is signified in the purpose of not only making them disciples, but then baptizing them. And so these disciples aren't people who are just going to walk by and they're going to tell you about Jesus. And someone says, well, I already know about Jesus, but thank you. Now I know a little bit more about Jesus. But that it's going to lead to an action on the part of the disciple that you are reaching. And that action is, is they're going to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and they're going to be so in love with Jesus that they're going to stand publicly and they're going to be baptized in the waters of baptism signifying their follower of Christ. And then it's not simply just getting them uh, to bow the knee to Jesus and get them into waters of baptism. The final step of the Great Commission is to teach them. And the disciples knew and understood this because they had been a part of Jesus' teaching ministry. And Jesus says, everything I taught you, I want you to teach them. And so the Great Commission isn't simply getting converts, it is getting disciples. Disciples are learners who understand and know what the call of Christ is in their life. And so we have action. We have action that leads to us witnessing and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with others, who then, by a course of action, bow the knee to Jesus, are baptized, and then we have the action, once again, of teaching them. Now, we go back to Acts 1.8. How are we to do that? How is the Great Commission to be lived out? Jesus says, and Luke reminds us, that we are to be his witnesses. Now that's a strategic job description. We are to be witnesses. The definite work of us as Christians is abundantly clear. For anybody who's wondered, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and I just don't know what to do, hear my words. You are to be Christ's witnesses. It's clear. What this meant was, and hear me out, that the disciples' sole purpose and goal as disciples of Christ was to bear witness about their Master, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
What that meant was it was important that they not just be theologians. They weren't called to be philosophers or leaders. They were called to be witnesses. Now that word witness, it comes from a Greek word called martos. Martos. Martos is where we get the word martyr from. Martyr, I'm sorry, Martus gives the idea of one who bears testimony. He was a witness. It was a legal term. When you would call upon a Martus to come on the witness stand and be able to articulate, this is what I saw when that crime took place. What we are to be is we are to be witnesses. Witnesses within God's celestial court telling people about what Christ has done in our lives. And so the goal of the disciples was, is to take the last three and a half years of interacting, walking, and talking, being loved by Jesus, and to tell that to others. What that means for us as Christians is to share with the world how Jesus Christ has changed our lives. I'm a witness. This is what Christ has done in my life, and my job is to share that with all who will listen. Now, while they may have had all kinds of other jobs as teaching and preaching and healing, all of them were subordinate to the theme of them being witnesses. And quite frankly, that's true for us today. What good is it for me to be a preacher if in my preaching I don't declare over and over and over again the change that Christ has made in my life? That I can say, I know Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I know He has done all that He said that He's done and all that He will do will come to fruition because I've seen the change that Christ has made in my life. We're to be witnesses. We are to bear testimony to who He is. But I want you to notice that it's not simply just a job, but it involves our part of, of doing something. And that is that we need to embrace, we need to be involved in embracing Christ's message. It involves embracing Christ's message. Inherent in the text of being God's witnesses is that we must understand to be one who has, who is a witness must have their life changed in some way. For a witness to get on a witness stand, one must have been a part of a situation that they saw and they were able to now testify as to what they have seen and what they now bear witness to. And so what I mean by that is for us to be witnesses, what is implicit within that is we must be a changed people. We must be a people who have seen the glory of Christ, who have seen God take away our sin and give us purpose and peace And then our job is to then share that. Now, there's a couple things I want you to understand. As the disciples were hearing this, they fully recognized what they were to witness about. They understood what was to be articulated. They had lived with Jesus. They had heard him teach. And so they could say, let me tell you about this Jesus. This Jesus, the reason why I love him is because he loved me. The reason why I love Jesus, man, the way that Jesus taught, so different than the way uh, the Pharisees and, and the other chief priests and leaders taught. What Jesus did was transform lives. When I live according to the teachings of Jesus, my life has changed. People could be able to come and say, I was living a life of sin. And Jesus came, and he called me out of my life of sin, and he called me to sin no more, and now I live a life of holiness, not pursuing the garbage of my past, as Peter says, the empty way of life. But now I have a life of fulfillment and purpose because I've embraced Christ's message. And now I'm going to share this with you. There was much for the disciples to share. It wouldn't have been hard for them with the power of the Holy Spirit to share some things about Jesus. But let me ask us this morning, how much have we embraced the message of Christ That when the time comes, we have all kinds of things to share about Jesus. Are you so in love with Jesus? 
Are you so enthralled with what Jesus has done in your life? Have you seen Christ meet you in hours of great need that when someone says, tell me about Jesus, you can't stop uttering fact upon fact, instance upon instance of Christ moving in your life? Quite frankly, some of us are unable to be witnesses of Christ to anybody because we ourselves have not witnessed what Christ wants to show us. We are so focused in on other things that the last thing we'd be able to say other than, well, he's my Lord and Savior, beyond that, we don't have much to share because our walk with Christ is not an intimate, dynamic walk with him where we have trusted him with the hard things, where we have seen him come, where there seems to be no way Christ has come through. So when someone says, how has Christ moved in your life? Why should I, a sinner, be a follower of Jesus Christ? If you can't just sit there and utter phrase upon phrase, word upon word of what Christ has done in your life, then it's time for you to embrace that message once again. And to ask the question, Christ, I'm not allowing you to change me. Christ, I have uh, put away the Holy Spirit. I've grieved the Holy Spirit in such a way that I am not having my eyes open to what you are doing and how you are moving in my life. The disciples were able to be witnesses because they embraced not only the message of Christ, but the person of Christ. They embraced who Christ was and his calling for them to be like him. They embraced the power that came with the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you may have incredible stories to share about Christ moving in your life or Christ moving in the lives of other people, but you're not allowing the Spirit to empower you to share those things. And so you keep those things to yourself. The witnesses of the book of Acts, the disciples, were filled with the Holy Spirit, and I may add the same Holy Spirit that we're filled with, and because of that, they were able to encounter all types of difficult situations. And when the rubber met the road, every time they were asked to talk about Jesus, they were to share the praises of Jesus. This is who Jesus is. They embrace the message. And we need to as well. And I want you to notice one other thing. is As we look at this, we say, yes, okay. I understand my mandate, my mission. Is clear. I'm to be a witness. Many of you have heard that again. Tim hasn't uttered anything this morning that you, if you've been a follower of Jesus for some time, have heard. It's not hard to understand that we need to embrace the message of, of the gospel. Embrace it over and over again, each and every day, looking at our salvation, looking what Christ has done in our life, and anew with gratitude in our hearts, living out that salvation to a watching world. But here's the problem. Many of us still aren't being those witnesses that we're called to. And I want you to notice for a moment that we need to steer clear of some things because there's some common mistakes that come with evangelism and outreach that we as Christians may not even be aware that we fall into. And I want to highlight some of these because I don't see any of these in the book of Acts. And so if they're not in the book of Acts, we don't want to follow these ways. And so what I want to do is I want to share from a personal uh, standpoint, looking at uh, this from an individual standpoint, but I also want you to think about it as with the church. And there's a couple of them. Write these down in your outline. One of the first mistakes we can make with regards to uh, our Christianity, with regards to evangelism, is we can do what I call introverted Christianity. Introverted Christianity. Just write that somewhere in your outlines. Uh, there should be space there for you this morning. And what that means is within this Christianity... While you're a follower of Jesus Christ, while you desire in some ways for Christ to be glorified through your life, for whatever reason, you just don't show it. You keep it to yourself. Now, some reasons may be a defeated attitude. Well, if I say something, I'll just get in trouble at work. If I take the stand at school, then everybody's going to laugh at me and I'm not going to be popular. If I do this, it's going to create troubles in the family. And so why, why wreck a good thing? Everybody's okay. Why would I bring out my religion? Because there's a couple of things you don't talk about in family, and that's religion and politics. You just don't do it. And so I'm going to keep all of these things to myself. Another defeated attitude with introverted Christianity is that nothing's going to change. 
people that I talk with, they're, they're not going to be any different. Telling someone about the gospel is only going to change our relationship for the bad, not for the good. So I'll just keep it to myself and I'll figure out that God, God's going to figure it out. He's smart enough. He'll figure out how to accomplish it on his own. Now, what I don't mean is introverted personalities. This is not an attack on people. I'm an extrovert. Okay. So talking with people isn't, isn't a tough thing for me. I'm not talking about from a personality. I'm talking about a mindset that says, whether in large gatherings or small gatherings, one-on-one people we know or don't know, that we make a conscious decision based on a whole bunch of totally understandable reasons. All of those are understandable. But can I tell you something? The Acts Church moved beyond introverted Christianity. And they said, yeah, we know we're going to be persecuted, but we're going to share the gospel. We know our family may disown us, but we're going to share the gospel. We know that we may lose our house, we may lose our job, but we're going to share the gospel. Quite frankly, brothers and sisters, I think one of the reasons why the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved was because the people of God were willing to take big risks for God and to walk by faith. And I don't think we've got the guts to do that sometimes. I think we look and we say, well, well, God can't be calling me to that because if he's calling me to that, that just seems nonsense. Well, faith is doing things that just don't make sense sometimes. And so we see that. The second one I want you to look at is the issue of what I call industrial Christianity. Industrial Christianity. And what this is, is most seen clearly or clearly seen in what is called the social gospel. And, and industrial Christianity is, is really no gospel at all. And, but what it involves, and it totally looks good, it totally in many ways makes sense, is to take some of the teachings of Christ and elevate those above all of the teachings of Christ. And so what the world does and what we do as Christians is say, okay, I don't know if I can share the gospel, but what I will do is I'll go and I'll be a really good citizen in society. And so I'll go and I'll build homes for people. I'll go and I'll bring food and water to people that need it. I'll give clothing for people. I'll take care of people's temporal needs. But at no point, at, at, at no such time, is it ever a thought that we should be sharing the gospel with these people. Mainline uh, denominations, especially in the early 60s, uh, really fell in love with this mindset. Instead of sharing the gospel with people, They started sharing temporal uh, services to people. Now, hear me out. And we do this as a missions group here at Village Bible Church. We are called to give clothing to the naked. We are to feed the hungry. We are to uh, do all of these wonderful things. And we should. But if all we do is give in a temporal sense, then what good will it be for them on the judgment day? At what point do we then ask the question, what real good is it? Now, while it takes care of a meal, and I love what Jesus says. Jesus, remember, feeds the 5,000. They're hungry. And he feeds the 5,000, and they come back the next day, and he says, you're just back here for another meal. Let me give you words of life. Let me give you bread that will never allow you to go hungry. Let me give you water, as he said to the woman at the well, so you will thirst no more. The balance of ministry must always be that we love our neighbors as ourselves and we care for them. But one of the ways that we love them is not simply with the temporal, but with the eternal. And so we can help our neighbors and there's very tangible things. You say, well, I I, I can't share the gospel with with the Joneses next door, but I'll, I'll take care of them. I'll mow the grass. I'll paint their house. I'll help them clean their gutters. And that's how I'll be Jesus to people. Brothers and sisters, at some point, at some point, while that may be cultivating some aspects, at some point, you need to articulate to that individual, you need, your gutters are a problem, yes, but your sin is a bigger one. The issue that you have that your house needs to be painted or needs to be repaired is a big one, yes, I understand that, but your problem with eternity is even greater. We need to balance the idea of helping in the temporal with articulating and declaring that which is eternal. The next one I want you to look at is what I call all-inclusive Christianity. All-inclusive Christianity. And what I mean by this is, and, and this is so true in American evangelicalism, it's sick. And I think it comes from a good place, but I see it in my life all the time. 
And what it is, is it's where we as Christians say, yes, we want to reach the world. Yes, we want to transform the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how can we? Because we have no connections with the outside world. All our friends are Christians. The only radio we listen to is Christian. The only movies that we see are Christian. Everything that we do has a Christian subculture around it. So any time that we would ever have any involvement with the world, our desire is as well, let's get through this as quick as possible so we can go back and doing our Christian things. Churches have to be careful of this. We do this with uh, as elders all the time. We ask the question, we want to balance what teaching and fellowship and spending time together as Christians should be a part of here at Village Bible Church with also the call to reach your neighbors with the love of Jesus Christ. The last thing we want you to do is be so involved in the things of the Christian subculture that you can't even know your neighbors. And so what we need to be careful with is that our Christianity, as easy as it is here in America, to put ourselves into a sphere that covers ourselves from all worldly things, to ask the question, how can I reach the world if I'm not living in the world? If I'm not part of the community? If I don't know what's going on in my neighbor's lives? And we can do that so quickly because we've got so many Christians around us. The next one that I want you to look at is what I call imitate the world Christianity. And so some, and, and this is seen in churches as well, but it's seen in our lives. We say the way that I'll reach my neighbors, the way I'll reach my friends, I'll just be one of them. Incognito Christianity. That would have worked too. I, incognito. Okay? And so what you do is, when you hang out with your, your neighbors and friends, which is wonderful, you're saying, well, I'm not all-inclusive. This is the opposite. And what happens is, is when you hang out with them, you talk with them, and, and you joke about the things they joke about, and, and you're engaged fully in the culture that they're a part of, and, and you're just there. And so what your neighbor sees is, is that Tim's just like me. He's no different. Except, you know, the only thing I do, he does go to church quite a bit. That's different. But when I see him, we're all the same. And so the time that I would ever share the gospel with him, when I say, hey, brother, you're a sinner, you need a savior, he would say, but you're just like me. There's no difference. And so what we do is we know that that's the case. So we'd be caught dead before we would ever share the gospel because we know that our neighbors would be right. You're no different than me. You act like me. Your marriage is like my marriage. Your kids are like my kids. Your entertainment's like my entertainment. It's all the same. So why would I change anything? The next one is, is what I call in-your-face Christianity. In-your-face Christianity. And what this is, is pretty self-explanatory. It's the Christian who desires to win people, but who does so in a rude and judgmental way. Leaves the hearer put off, not by the message, but by the manner of speech that it's given him. I was recently with some people at a catering event and I shared with the group of people, it was a group of senior citizens, that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, that's heavy news for a caterer to share with his people, but I did. And four of the people worked at a local hospital. And they said, you know what, the reason why I don't like Christianity is there's a guy who is a Christian. And I know this guy, by the way, and so I could totally understand where they're coming from. And he says he calls himself a Christian. He carries his Bible wherever he goes. And we will tell you something, he's the rudest jerkiest individual anybody has ever met. And i got to be honest with you, while I don't like to call my friends or my brothers in Christ's names, he's a follower of Jesus Christ, he is not the most friendly guy to be a part of. And so what I said was, when I said I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, you know what they did with me? Well, I thought we liked you, Tim, but if you're like that guy, we don't want nothing to do with you. Can I tell you, those three people that, that heard me say I was a follower of Jesus Christ totally were closed off to the gospel. They said, if being a Christian is being a jerk, I don't want nothing to do with it. And so we've got to be careful with these mistakes. And these are subtle. They aren't always easy. We don't always see these things going in our lives. So what do we do? Just very quickly, the model that we here, have here at Village Bible Church is what we call incarnational ministry. And what that means, incarnational ministry, means all of us getting involved with all of them. What that means is Jesus. Let's look at Jesus. Jesus came in what we call the incarnation. He became what? One of us, right? He was God, but He became 
man. So he became one of us and he came to us. And he didn't just go to those who were all perfect and, and all set up and everything, but he went to the lowest of lows, those people on the other side of the tracks, those people whose lives and experiences were totally in contrast to who Jesus was and his holiness. But he loved on them and he ministered to them. But notice, while he was accused of being a friend of sinners, never could he be accused of falling to sin. Never a time would he be accused of falling to sin. Yes, he was called and he was called out for associating with them, but never called in their sin. And so that's the tough thing. How do we do that? How do I hang out with my neighbor but not fall to all the things maybe uh, my neighbors fall to? How do I live contrary to the world but loving enough that the world sees me but sees me differently and yet sees me as something incredibly positive, not only in their life, but in the life of society. That is tough. And so every day we've got to get up and we have to ask the question, Lord, how am I to be light in this world? How am I to be salt? How can I be different and yet be uh, winsome enough so that I might win some to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Paul says, I will be like all kinds of men. I will do all kinds of things. We need to understand, and I want you to write this phrase down. While the message of Christ is fixed, while the message of Christ is fixed, our methods must be flexible. While the methods, I'm sorry, while the uh, message of Christ is fixed, the gospel is clear. We can't tamper with the gospel. What we have to ask in our own society in our own situations, is how is Christ going to take that unchangeable gospel of a holy God and sinful man and by His grace, God sending His Son so that we might have an opportunity at redemption, that fixed message, how is God going to use that in my catering business? How is God going to use that in Hinkley, Illinois? How is God going to use that when my boy's friends come over? How is that going to happen on the soccer field? How is that going to happen with regards to helping people in their time of need? I don't have the answer. But every day I've got to ask God, what does it mean to be Christ to a lost world? And brothers and sisters, if we're going to live out the first church's example, then we got to make sure that we don't fall to these mistakes. It involves being Christ in a fallen world. And that's dangerous. And that's cumbersome. Peter will learn in the upcoming weeks that because of that, we will be aliens and strangers in this world. It's not going to be easy. But we're given the power to do so. So how did they do it? How did the first church do it? Let's notice the early church's methods. I just want you to see this. It's just This is more of just kind of a synopsis of the book of Acts. If you were to look at the book of Acts over and over again, there are dozens of different ways that people shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to highlight some of them for you. You can write these down again just as a way of help. We won't take a lot of time on them, though. The first one we see is mass evangelism. One person standing up in, in, in a... And a group of people, a mass of people, and a person articulating the gospel. Now, we've seen some good examples of this in the life of a guy like Billy Graham and Luis Palau and, and Greg Laurie. We've seen guys that do these incredible crusades that have great fruit and great harvest of righteousness. But we also see the guy that's in the middle of the town square or in the middle of a college quad or in the airport standing up and saying, burn, baby, burn. You're all going to hell. And so there's good examples of it, and there are bad examples of it. We see that kind of evangelism happen by the Westboro Baptist Church that goes to these military funerals with these horrific signs, and they're doing what they believe is mass evangelism. And so just because you're a person, telling people the truth doesn't always mean that you're doing it right. So we see the example in Acts 2. Peter, it tells us, notice in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard the sound, the sound of Pentecost from the upper room, <clears throat> a crowd came together and bewildered it, because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language, utterly amazed. They said, aren't these Galileans? And notice later on in the text, verse 14, this mass of people have shown up. 
And then in verse 14, it says Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. There are times we will be called to evangelism in this way. Not too long ago, I was called early in the morning, and many of you have, been, have heard of this, by a couple high school teachers who said a, a, a young man at the school had just died. We want you to come, and we don't know what to tell these kids, and you come. I'm not a morning person, so when I got to call at about 7.30, man, that was, it's early for me, okay? And I had to get up, and I remember not knowing what I was going to imagine. There's a couple kids, and the whole side of the gymnasium was full. And what they did is they handed me a mic and said, hey, just tell us something that will give these kids peace. And in that moment, now I want you to remember something. The teachers called me. They didn't even know I was a pastor. So you sit there and say, well, of course they'd call you. You're a pastor. In Hinkley, a lot of people just know me as the pork chop guy. So I want you to imagine for a moment you calling someone who's good at barbecue, okay, and saying, hey, we got an issue here. A kid's died, and we want you to share something that will give these kids hope. And the kids, all they know me as is the guy that comes there at school and cooks pork chops every once in a while. The foolishness of man being used by God. And in that moment, without any question, without any reprisal, the gospel was clearly presented. And nobody said a word. And you know what? i, I got to be honest with you. I'm tired of us as Christians saying, well, they're going to come after Let them come after us. What are we afraid of? The church was built on the blood of martyrs. And we're sitting there saying, but they, they may yell at us. Who cares? Let me tell you something. I just got an invite to speak. These are great opportunities. I never thought I'd to speak at the FFA banquet of Hinkley Big Rock. Future farmers of America, and they're going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know how I'm going to plant Jesus Christ into an FFA banquet. You can pray for that in March. But I know nothing about farming. All I know is about Jesus. Here's the funny thing. I'm catering the event. And so I want you to know something. It's not because my job is a pastor. These people don't know that. I try not to explain that to people. Because people get weird when a pastor's in the room. I'm far more effective when I'm Tim the caterer when it comes to the gospel. Because it's real to them. They're just like, you're just like one of them. And so brothers and sisters, use discernment. But I'd ask you, have bigger steps of faith than what God did. Can I tell you something? It's not easy to stand in your community in front of the whole student body of your school, of your community. Even as a 36, 37-year-old man and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, it ain't easy. But when God tells you to do it, you do it. And God says, I'll be faithful. I don't even know where I'm at now, but mass evangelism. Mass evangelism. Next we notice church evangelism. We've got to keep moving. Church evangelism. This is seen in Acts 2, 42-47. They were the best church that they could be. They loved on Jesus. They pursued Jesus. And they loved one another. And it says over and over again that people on the outside wanted to be on the end. It's just a great place to be. And God worked on those who, who were just spectators. And I remember I said that that whole thing with Ananias and Sapphira had to sober up any spectators within the church. That when you see a person drop dead because they make a lie before God and their fellow man, this God's serious. He doesn't mess around. And yet God uses us as a church. And we've got to know our place within this, in this community is to be the best church that we can be. Not so people can talk about us, but that they can talk about our Savior. What a great Savior that church has. It's amazing what they do. And that's what we need to be living out. Living out what the church is in our own lives so that others may see it. The next one is what we call apologetic evangelism apologetic evangelism. This is seen in Acts 17. Paul goes, and Paul does this a lot. Paul goes to hostile territory. He's in the Areopagus um, of uh, Athens. There's a bunch of smart Greeks sitting around, philosophers, and he involves himself in a debate. I love this. This is not my way of evangelism. I'm not smart enough to do this stuff, but man, I really got, love guys that do. Man, I, I love Robbie Zacharias. This guy goes to Harvard and, and the Ivy League school, plants himself into liberal uh, secular education, and he says, let me tell you about Jesus. Bring it on. 
Bring your smartest dudes. Bring it on because my God's a whole lot smarter than you are. That's apologetic evangelism, okay? And some of you are geared for that. But the one, oh, one other one we see very quickly is supernatural evangelism, okay? I don't want to miss this. In Acts 9, nobody shares the gospel with a man named Saul of Tarsus, but Jesus Christ himself. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius has a dream about needing to hear the gospel. And then Peter gets a vision and he needs to go see this guy named Cornelius. And Cornelius is told, go find Peter. This is where he's at. And we just see the hand of God in this. And what we need to understand, while it's not something we see over and over again, that Jesus Christ is active in the evangelism of his own gospel as well. The final one we see over and over and over again is personal evangelism. One person sharing about the man and message of salvation, Jesus Christ. And what this involves is us spending time with people. And some of you I know with good intentions and a good heart have been pouring into relationships. You've been praying about relationships. But at no point has it ever dawned upon you that I need to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with this person. I know they need to be saved. I know they're going to spend eternity in hell. And at no point have you articulated the gospel. Personal evangelism is not just a nice word for being a friend of an unbeliever. Personal evangelism is seeing that unbeliever's greatest need is the salvation of their souls. So let me ask you this. What kind of friend are you? What kind of friend are you when you know that eternity of destruction and pain is coming their way? And you don't share the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to be evangelizing to people. So how do we do it? Let's just get to this final point. I need to, to land this plane. It's going to involve us engaging in the Christian mission. We're called to be witnesses. It's not a hard text for us to understand. It's, it's a big idea of preaching. You are to be his witnesses. Okay? And we've talked about a lot of ways that we can or can't be his witnesses. But how do we engage in it now? Here's the application. Number one, there, there are four attributes I want you to look at this morning. Number one, you've got to be theologically sound. What that means is, is that you need to be devoting yourself to the apostles' teaching. That means get into the Word. And you have to be biblically and theologically sound. What is the problem with mankind? What does God say about sinners? How does God work in the life of sinners? What does the gospel mean? If you don't know what the gospel means, brothers and sisters, it's not praying a prayer. It is about a sinner turning from death by the gift of the Holy Spirit and being reborn and being changed in, a, in an instant. And because of that change, being empowered to pursue faith and to pursue good works and to pursue all that is called upon in Scripture. Do you know what that looks like? Do you know how to teach people all that Christ has commanded you? We get this idea, if we can get our people just to sign on the dotted line their salvation, we're all good. But you've just created a big problem, and that big problem is, is that person needs to be discipled. And if we can't disciple them, we're in trouble because we just we just given birth to a new baby and say, okay, on your own, good luck. And so we need to be theologically sound. We need to know what the Bible says and what God says about sinners and how they are to be saved and how they're to be discipled. Number two, we need to be morally pure. How can we share a pure gospel if we're not pure ourselves? Again, I don't want to preach next time, next the next series, but Peter says we are called to be holy just as God is holy. Why? Because if we're not morally pure, we don't have a foot to stand on with the gospel. And so what people need to be able to do is what First Peter says is they can look at our lives and see we live such good lives that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they glorify God on the day that he visits. The idea here is even though they hate our guts, they look at us and say, oh, I hate that, but all, but he does live the way the Bible tells him to live. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of biblical ethics. He's a man who loves his wife and his children. He's a man who won't cheat anyone. I still hate his guts. We need to be structurally missional. Structurally missional. We can do all, uh, we can have all the wishing and hoping, but if we don't position our lives in a way that we can reach the world for Christ, and we're never going to do it. 
And so you walk out of this place and say, yeah, I really want to do it. Well, what are you going to change? Number one, we're called to pray for people. We're called to pray for them. Lord, open the eyes of people. Open the eyes of my friends that they may see you. Lord, give me opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Lord, give me opportunities not to be in their face, but lovingly, as one says, as a beggar tells another beggar where to find bread. I want to be your hands and feet, Jesus. What ways can your family be structurally missional? How can you start interacting with unbelievers in a way that will give you opportunity? How can you change the the way that you do your daily ritual in life that can add some evangelism and, and outreach to your day? Instead of just going through the motions of getting everything done, ask the question, how can I begin to do that? And again, what Tim does may not be perfect for you. We live in different situations. But I'm asking you, I'm begging you to look at your life and say, where is evangelism and outreach being lived out? And I will tell you, the best outreach and evangelism is done in the real lives of people. That's what we see in the book of Acts. And finally, brothers and sisters, we've got to be verbally active. The Bible says, how can they know if they have not heard? And, and the Word of God says, how beautiful are the feet that bring good news. Brothers and sisters, I know for many of us, we're right there and we've built into the lives of people, but we've never come to the point of asking that person, are you saved? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? And we need to be verbally active with regards to that. We need to be declaring. First Peter says, the praises of Him who's called us out of darkness and brought us into His wonderful light. Are you declaring the praises of Jesus? Have you ever told the coworker next to you, hey, the reason why my marriage is where it's at is because of Jesus. I'd be lost without Him. The reason why I have hope and peace that, that we're not going to be laid off or even if we do get laid off, that, that there's, there's going to be uh, sustenance and, and, and help is because I believe in a good God, a faithful God. Brothers and sisters, those are the moments that we can change someone's life with the cause of Christ. But we have to be theologically sound. We have to be morally pure. We have to be structurally missional. It has to impact the way we do things. And we have to open our mouths. And so I pray what the book of Colossians was praying, or what the people of Colossae were called to pray for, for the Apostle Paul, that we would open our mouths and that our message would be clear. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and we've been given your marching orders. And we're thankful for it because without those orders, we wouldn't have a clue of what to do. And your orders are clear. They're concise. They're easy for any of us to know and understand. And so, Lord, now, now that we know them, now that we know some of the mistakes that we can uh, uh, fall to, Lord, I pray that we will now go out and do what the early church did. And that is, Lord, reach their world and pursue unbelievers with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, it's going to be different. The methods will be flexible, but Lord, let the message be the same that was articulated by Peter, Paul, and John and the rest of those great Christians of the early church. Lord, we know that when they did those things, it wasn't an easy life, but it was a life that brought great pain and trouble. And so, Lord, we pray for perseverance as those troubles and pains come our way. Give us the power by the Holy Spirit to do these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.